Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I am delighted to be joined today by McKay Coppins, who is a writer for The Atlantic and the author of a New York Times best-selling book, Romney, A Reckoning, which has uh, caused amusement and a, and a lot of interest in recent weeks. But I think we'll make the theme of this podcast, but it will involve talking about Romney, Mitt Romney a lot, make the theme of the podcast about the likelihood of a third-party candidacy in 2024. Because last week, I think it was, unless time is going by much quicker than I thought, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia announced that he would not be seeking re-election, but did sort of flirt with the idea, or has flirted with the idea, of running a presidential bid. And then stories sort of circulated, Axios did it, I think others did it too, of a Romney-Manchin presidential bid. McKay, tell us, as uh, a preeminent expert on Mitt Romney, is this likely? I would say it's not likely. I pressed him on this question quite a bit earlier this year when I was kind of finishing up my book, um, because it was interesting, actually. Around January or February, I started coming to his house, and I was doing these interviews. I've been doing them for a couple of years. But earlier this year, when I came to his house, I would often find him sort of scheming about, you know, some kind of third-party presidential bid or something that he could do to be in the mix in 2024 and to kind of hold Trump to account in particular. That His feeling was that Joe Biden, in his advanced years, it was not uh, well-suited to make a solid case against Donald Trump and his presidency. And Mitt Romney had this kind of idea of like running a cathartic primal scream of a presidential campaign where he would just sort of be able to be on the debate stage and, you know, take it to Trump and and say everything that he thought. And he considered it seriously until some of his long-term political advisors basically convinced him that if he ran for president, he would probably end up helping Donald Trump more than Joe Biden, that the votes he would peel away would probably be Biden voters. And while he he certainly doesn't agree with Joe Biden on a lot and actually doesn't think Joe Biden should be running for president in 2024, he thinks the the prospect of a third, a second Trump term would be more dangerous. And so he doesn't want to do anything to help him. So that at least when I last talked to him, that was his mindset. But, uh, you know, I, I don't want to rule it out completely or rule out anything, because one thing I've learned about Mitt Romney is that he's always kind of actively considering things, changing his mind. And if somebody could convince him that running for president as a third party uh, candidate would not help Trump, I think he would probably be inclined to do it. Yes. Uh, I suppose one thing that struck me about the possibility of a Manchin-Romney ticket, as fantastical as it might be, is that both men, while they disagree with Biden uh, in different ways, Manchin is a Democrat, Romney is a Republican, they are friends with Joe Mm. Biden. They like him a lot personally, and I think the feeling is mutual. You uncovered a bit of how much Romney and and Biden actually get on, didn't you? Yeah, that was one of the more surprising things I learned in reporting this book. You know, Romney 
while he didn't vote for Joe Biden in 2020, he, I think, wrote in his wife's name as sort of a protest against the the two options. He was privately, I'm told, hoping that that Biden would win. And in part, that was because he bought into the idea that Biden would be a return to normalcy in Washington, that he would, uh, you know, act in a bipartisan way. He had a reputation, Joe Biden, as sort of a schmoozer and a deal maker. And that Romney was here for that. He was kind of like, look, I, I want a president. I don't care which party who will work with me and, you know, this kind of little bipartisan group of senators that I have to pass legislation. And he thought that that's what Joe Biden would be like. In, in the first year or so, he was actually disappointed. He felt like Biden sort of kept him at arm's length. You know, the way I, I would describe it is he, he kind of wanted to be schmoozed by Biden and, and Biden wasn't doing much schmoozing, but they eventually did connect and uh, they, they ended up working together on the infrastructure bill that uh, Congress passed. Mitt Romney ended up working on a couple other bipartisan bills that Joe Biden supported. But interestingly, to your point, they actually became friends as well. And they got to the point where they would have these kind of phone calls that were in part, you know, about doing business, but a part about, in part, like commiserating about the indignities of aging. And they would have these kind of like old guy conversations, checking in on each other's grandkids and things like that. I, I, I have one story that I heard that at one point, Mitt Romney gave Joe Biden some advice uh, about how to appear less old in public, where where he said, you know, I've noticed in public you kind of shuffle when you walk, and you when, that makes you look old. And and so if you want to look more youthful and vigorous, you need to take longer strides. And Joe Biden called him back a few weeks later and said, Hey, uh, Mitt, I took your advice and it worked. I finished a speech and I took kind of longer strides as I left the stage and the first lady was there and she said, wow, what's gotten into you? <laughs> so, so it kind of speaks to the odd sort of bipartisan friendship they've developed. And I do think he likes Joe Biden. I think he, he respects him as a person. He thinks he has, you know, a fundamentally good character. He disagrees with him on a lot of policy, but he doesn't think he's embarrassing as a president. At, at the risk of sounding unkind, do you know if this advice was given before or after the most famous recent fall on stage? Do you think, <laughs> was he trying to uh, step to, was he making his step too It big? was before, and, and that's a good point. Maybe Biden needs to like not take too long of strides. He needs to shorten the strides a little bit to be uh, to be yeah. a little more careful. Somewhere in between <laughs> a shuffle and a, and a leap. <laughs> One thing about Mitt Romney that comes out of your writing and is probably quite well known now is the extent to which he's plugged into a network of very, very influential and very well-off people who really want to stop Trump. And I'm not mm -hmm. going to sort of get into kind of conspiracy theory alley. I think a lot of them think that they need to save American democracy and so on. But there's also this No Labels campaign, which has been associated with the idea of this mansion Romney ticket. What's your impression of his relationship with the now extremely well-funded No Labels campaign? And to what extent is he always still operating behind the scenes in his attempt to... He's, he's, he's the ultimate never-Trumper, isn't he, uh, Romney? He is. He is. I mean, I write in, you know, about how in 2016, he was working pretty extensively behind the scenes in a way that I didn't know about, and I don't think many did, to deprive Trump of the the necessary delegates to clinch the Republican nomination. He was trying to get, you know, the Rubio campaign and the Cruz campaign and the Kasich campaign to coordinate to, you know, like split up the remaining states and all of that. It didn't end up working, obviously. But, but Mitt Romney does 
operate behind the scenes to try to basically keep Trump from the White House. And he's had relatively limited success so far. I think he would continue to do it. I mean, look, I don't think it's a conspiracy theory that, you know, people like Mitt Romney find Donald Trump dangerous and want to do what they can to stop him. And I think Mitt Romney also recognizes, and he's told me this, like, you know, one of the reasons he didn't make an endorsement, for example, in 2020, he didn't come out and endorse Joe Biden, and I don't know if he will in 24, is that he doesn't think he actually has that much influence over ordinary voters anymore, right? He he recognizes that he's something of a pariah in his own party, that Republican primary voters don't really care about his opinions. And if he endorsed a Republican primary candidate, it's very possible that they would, it would actually hurt that candidate. A bit like Jeb Bush coming out in support of Ron DeSantis, was sort of, you can time that's that with the moment that it all started that, to go wrong. No, that's exactly right. I mean, I think that Mitt Romney recognizes that where he does have influence still is among the party's donors, right? The the kind of Republican donor class who have always been turned off by Trump. They, I think they liked some of what he did in the president in, in his first term, but they don't like him, right? And one of the ideas, this is you asked about no labels, Romney, because he believes that basically any third party candidate that no labels would field would end up helping inadvertently helping Donald Trump. Mm. He's pretty skeptical of the idea of a no labels presidential candidate. That said, one of the kind of schemes that he had at one point when I met with him earlier this year was to start a third party, perhaps under the no labels banner, perhaps not, that didn't field a presidential candidate, but rather that kind of laid out its sort of centrist platform and said, we are going to gather a bunch of like-minded donors and throw our support behind whichever of the two major party nominees is closest to our platform. Mm. And the idea of that was in part, you know, we won't play the spoiler, right? We'll be able to help the candidate that we like the most. But also his, his idea was, you know, for example, if we ended up endorsing Joe Biden and throwing our support behind him, that could act as a check against the left wing of the Democratic Party, which is trying to pull him to the left constantly. We could say, well, look, we're trying to pull him a little bit more toward the center. And if he's reelected, he'll owe us in the way that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are constantly claiming that he owes them. So it was kind of an interesting idea for what he thought would be a, an attempt to depolarize American politics. The last I've heard that that's kind of been put on ice, but the, I think partly because no labels seems very intent on fielding a presidential candidate. I don't think they'd be content with kind of this idea of just gathering donors and putting money behind one of the two other candidates. There's a, a certain sadness about it all, isn't there? Because I think everybody knows that the majority of Americans are concerned about the polarisation of politics. The kind of no-labels people are right to think that there is this huge opportunity in the centre ground. But the problem for them is the vast majority of American people are sick of the way Washington works, and these people tend to be very mm. Washington people. Yes, I, I think that's right. I mean, this is why these kind of centrist third-party efforts always end up failing. And, and, and as a political journalist, I've kind of become 
cynical about them myself because they always have great convincing polling data to show that, you know, a huge portion of Americans actually agrees with us on these issues, right? We, we, they stake out these sort of centrist positions on all these polarizing issues. And they say, the vast majority agree with us on taxes and immigration and guns and even abortion, right? These, these very polarizing issues that, but the reality is these efforts never really get off the ground. They never are able to attract any kind of critical mass of voters. I mean, the last time we saw a third party candidate do anything real probably was Ross Perot in the, in the early nineties. And, you know, part of that is just structural the way that it's set up. But also I think you're right. that part of it is the people who tend to become faces of these third party efforts are not populists, right? I mean, Ross Perot was actually a populist in a lot of ways. Like the way that he ran his campaign, he was a Washington outsider. You know, there were even kind of shades of Trumpian, uh, you know, uh, flourishes in the Ross Perot campaign. But, you know, Joe Manchin, I think, would be hard to position himself as a Washington outsider. Mitt Romney, although he actually has spent most of his career outside of Washington, is not viewed as somebody who exists outside of politics. And both of them are pretty skeptical of populism in general. And I think that when you're kind of an anti-populist candidate, it's pretty hard to rally uh, enough Americans to buck against the two-party system in America. And one thing I've picked up on from what you've written, and also generally in the sort of Never Trump movement, is uh, the the ongoing and still very well-funded Never Trump movement, is this bitterness and this snark that comes out. And this, you know, don't do stupid is the no labels, you know, they'll support the non-stupid candidate. And this, I think, I'm right to say perhaps I'm not, is actually, while it gets traction on social media and so on, it's very off-putting to most people because it, it feels elitist, it feels looking down on voters and so on. And and it's very odd coming from Romney. I'm not saying he has in public so much, but Romney is someone you associate with sort of old-fashioned, almost silent generation American values of, you know, winning. Also, he's a Mormon. And that sort of snark doesn't sit very well with him. I wonder, what did he think about the Lincoln Project, for instance? Yeah, well, so I, I would say that Mitt Romney is actually kind of not a perfect example of this because, you know, when this book came out, a lot of the things that got pulled out that, you know, immediately made news were his sort of withering assessments of various prominent Republicans and Donald Trump. And and he did say those things. Sometimes he said them to me in, in interviews. In many cases, these were things he wrote in his private journals going back more than a decade that he gave to me, I think, without fully realizing how much was in them. He later told me he hadn't reread them closely before giving them to me. So, you know, I don't know that he necessarily meant to come out and kind of burn down all of these people. He is enormously disappointed with many of the leaders of his party. And I think that's reflected in the book. But the snark you're referring to, I think, so the Lincoln Project, I I don't know that I've talked to him about the Lincoln Project specifically. I think he probably finds some of the same cathartic appeal to some of the content that they put out that many never Trump Republicans do. But I also I'm not sure that he would ever kind of like deliberately associate himself with something like the Lincoln Project. When I talked to him, he was often very careful not to criticize Trump voters. He was always criticizing Trump and Trump's kind of allies among Republican leaders who he felt are often acting disingenuously in the way that they cater to the kind of MAGA base. But he was always a little bit more reluctant to to go after Trump voters. I think probably he's been 
taught well in politics, including in his own campaign when he had that 47% tape leak, that that's not a winning strategy. You don't, you don't attack the voters. I would frame the point you're making slightly differently. I think the main problem with things like the Lincoln Project are that the brand of snark and the kind of sarcasm and irony that they deploy against Trump and his ilk are actually very appealing to liberal Democrats, right? It's it's liberal Democrats who, who tend to, I think, watch those videos and circulate them on social media and make them go viral and probably donate to things like the Lincoln Project. And I think that they're, they accurately capture how a small contingent of sort of Republican apostates in the Trump era feel. But the kind of broad center of the Republican Party sees that stuff as alienating. They see this kind of snark and content as stuff that, you know, just shows that the Republican establishment never cared about us. They never liked us. They've always kind of looked down their noses at us. And it's not that there isn't an audience for it. There's actually a very large audience. It just happens to be on the left side of the American the American political uh, spectrum. And that's not who these groups are purporting to reach. They're supposed to be reaching, you know, fellow Republicans. They are two very different men, Trump and Romney. But one thing they do do, and perhaps it's just an American thing that Brits like me don't understand, is divide the world very sharply into winners and losers. Hmm. And something sort of sad, there's a sadness in, in what you've written about Romney, because he does see himself as a loser in certain key ways. And he does feel that he no longer has this influence over his party that he has. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, I I think that one of the things that I actually found compelling about Romney as a subject is that he's kind of been forged in failure in politics, right? Like his defining moments of his political life have been running for and losing the presidency in 2012, and then more recently kind of waging this quixotic battle against Trumpism in the Republican Party and, and ultimately kind of realizing that he's been defeated on that front as well. I think that's why he feels that he doesn't have influence in his party, because frankly, like his approval rating in the Republican Party nationally is quite low. But it's interesting what you're saying, the the difference between America and and the, the, the American view of this and the British view, because maybe and I don't know if this is a British view, but I actually think there's something more poignant and even kind of noble about the the way that like about kind of waging these doomed battles that you believe in. I think that that's part of what I thought was really interesting about Mitt Romney, especially these last like seven or eight years. Like he always knew it was an uphill battle. I think when he first got to the Senate, he had these sort of naive notions that he would be able to steer the party away from Trumpism, but realized pretty quickly that wasn't going to happen. But the fact that he sort of has stayed on the sinking ship of never Trumpism and decided that he would continue to voice what he believed in, even though he knew it was unpopular. I think that there is kind of something very dramatic and sad. You're right. But also maybe a little redemptive in that story. Yes. And uh, tell me a little bit about what he thinks about 2012, because if you talk to a lot of Republican strategists, they'll tell you it's, it was a lot closer than everybody realizes. It's, it's now been written off as Obama's triumph. But actually, Romney's campaign was pretty effective, was it not? 
Well, certainly elements of it. First of all, the fact that he managed to win the Republican nomination in the climate that he was in. This was during the rise of the Tea Party. It was a very populist moment for the Republican Party. Some would argue kind of the beginnings of what would become the Trump movement. So just winning the nomination in that climate was no easy task. And then his campaign, his general election campaign. I mean, I guess what I would say is, you know, you talk to 15 Republican consultants about that campaign and you'll get 15 different opinions, right? And a lot of it is rooted in like uh, the internecine rivalries that they all have. And, you know, Stuart Stevens, who ran the campaign, is widely loathed by many other Republican consultants. He's now, I think, associated with the Lincoln Project himself. But Romney, in some ways, was actually a very good candidate for the Republican Party that year. The America was in a recession or climbing out of a recession at that point. The economy was top of mind. You know, there are some people in that campaign, and I think Mitt Romney himself might even believe this, that had a couple things broken differently in the last month of the election, he might have won. And, you know, one of them was the jobs reports that were coming out every month at that point were very carefully followed. You would actually see an effect on the presidential polls based on those jobs reports, uh, because Obama was claiming that he he was helping to bring the country out of recession. Romney's claim was that Obama had fundamentally failed at that. The final jobs report before the election was very good. It showed a a large number of jobs being added. So that kind of hurt Romney's message. And then the other thing that happened was Hurricane Sandy. There was a a big hurricane that sort of in some ways grounded Mitt Romney's campaign because it was this kind of tragic natural disaster. And Romney didn't really know how to run against Obama during that disaster. And Obama was able to shift into kind of, you know, commander in chief mode, which helped him. Also, some people forget this, but Chris Christie played a pivotal role in all this. He was the governor of New Jersey at the time. New Jersey was walloped by this campaign. And Christie, instead of kind of continuing to campaign with Romney, actually made a big show of doing a series of photo ops with Barack Obama as he toured New Jersey. And it kind of lent a bipartisan sheen to Obama's whole campaign. And I think that helped him too. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the reality, though, these presidential campaigns often hinge on small things. Mitt Romney it's funny when I talk to him now, like in the last couple of years about that campaign, he would tell me, oh, you know, I took the loss with a stiff upper lip. Like, you know, I was I was sad that I lost, but I, I was fine. I moved on quickly. If you then I would read his journals from that period and he was devastated. I mean, it, it really he had allowed himself in those kind of final days of the campaign to believe he was going to win. And the loss, he took it pretty hard. Yeah. I was going to say, actually, your next portrait of a Republican figure in a biography, Chris Christie would be a a good candidate, would he not? (laughs) That's not a bad idea. I mean, it's funny. I had to interview Mitt Romney 45 times and read all of his journals to get some of those juicy quotes in the book. Uh, I think I I probably only have to interview Chris Christie like twice to get the same (laughs) amount of colourful material, right? Yeah, the same amount of venom. Just going back quickly to Romney's flaws as a candidate and flaws as a politician and flaws as someone to defeat Trump. I mean, Bain Capital has to be a big one, doesn't it? At a time where a lot of Americans are tiring of rapacious global capitalism and so on, Bain Capital is quintessentially what they object to, is it not? 
I mean, yeah, the the thing is his work in Bain Capital, which is a private equity firm, you know, would turn around companies in some cases by conducting mass layoffs and shutting down factories and plants. That was a theme of attack ads against him from his very first campaign in the 90s when he ran for Senate against Ted Kennedy. Mm. I think that Bain Capital is part of the problem in his kind of ability to make a case against Donald Trump effectively. But more than that, I think it's the fact that Romney does have a kind of fundamentally Reaganite worldview when it comes to economics. Like he believes in supporting job creators and, and, you know, the kind of trickle down effect of the more money that goes to the top, the more it helps the rest of the, the country. I mean, I don't know if you'd put it exactly that way, but his worldview is fundamentally kind of conservative in that way. It's like old school 80s conservatism. And that is in a lot of ways, the brand of Republicanism that Trump very effectively campaigned against, right? And Mitt Romney recognizes this now. It's interesting when I talk to him about the failures of his 2012 campaign, he'll say, I realize now that making my entire economic message about job creators was fundamentally a losing message because most people are not quote unquote job creators. Most people work for job creators and most people don't especially like the job creators they work for, right? (laughs) Most people don't like their bosses or or, or don't have a ton of affection for them. And what they want is to hear about wages and, you know, how their lives will get better. And Mitt Romney said, if he had to do it over again, that's what he would talk about more. But he said that was something Donald Trump got right. Like his, his economic message was not about cutting entitlement programs or, you know, cutting taxes for corporations. It was about your life is going to be better. Now, that was the economic message. He talked about a lot of other stuff that got bigger applause lines. But at least in terms of this kind of like populist economic message that's become much more prominent in the Trump era GOP, Romney understands why that's more politically potent. But it's funny, Romney still doesn't totally embrace it. Like he, he, I think maybe in part because he sees himself as on the way out, he doesn't feel like he has to embrace popular positions that he still disagrees with. And yeah. and he, he has this riff about populism and in American politics and how he just, you know, kind of despises it. And he is in many ways an anti-populist. And I, I think that puts him out of step with this moment in American politics and Republican politics, but also, you know, he, he's kind of content with that. Can you give us a bit of the insight you've gathered on that famous dinner between Trump and Romney just after Trump won the 2016 election in the Trump Hotel? And it was Mm -hmm. sort of seen as this great humiliation for Romney that he had to go and almost sort of beg with Trump. Yeah. Has that been misbetrayed? Tell us a bit about that. Well, I actually was pretty interested by the story behind all that. I mean, it, it, I don't think it's necessarily been misportrayed because that that in some ways, I think that photograph where Mitt Romney kind of looks humiliated and Trump is grinning at the camera does capture the dynamic, right? That, that I think that's how Romney felt about the whole thing. What he told me was that after the election, when he got the call from Mike Pence saying, hey, Donald Trump wants to meet with you about the secretary of state position, Romney initially was skeptical and assumed that it was a trap of some kind, but was assured that it wasn't, that Trump was taking this seriously. And so Romney agreed to meet with him. His rationalization was basically, 
look, the Trump administration needs adults in the room. It needs serious people. Uh, some of the names being floated for secretary of that of state at that time were like Rudy Giuliani and Romney thought, if I can get in there, that's good. He was also getting calls once this became public, that this kind of possibility. He was getting calls from multiple former secretaries of state, Condoleezza Rice, Hillary Clinton, telling him, like, if Trump offers you this job, you have to take it, right? Yeah. <laughs> For the good of the country. So that was his rationalization. But but Romney also told me, he kind of admitted that the other part of it was just ambition. Like he just, he wanted the job. And even though he had been very critical of Donald Trump and didn't think Trump would be a especially good president, he liked to be in the action. And so that was the other part of the motivation of, of meeting with him. Behind the scenes, there were all kinds of interesting conversations. You know, Romney said, the only way I can take this job is if you agree to a series of conditions. And one of them was that I have veto power on ambassador appointments. The other was I get to be in charge of kind of sub-cabinet appointments. And another was uh, all foreign policy has to be run through the State Department. You can't be like freelancing, right? I, I have to be involved in all of this. And Trump kind of said, oh, sure, sure, that's all fine. Um, but ultimately the breaking point for him, the, the deal breaker for Trump was he told Romney, you have to go out and retract everything that you said about me in 2016, right? Yeah. You have to take back all the criticism. Yeah. And, Rom- and Romney was just like, look, nobody would, would take that seriously. Like nobody would believe that, I, that the retraction was sincere and like, I will look like a fool. And I just, you know, I'm not going to do that. And because he wasn't willing to do that, Trump kind of rescinded any potential offer. Now, after the fact, some people in Trump's camp claimed that Trump was never serious about this, that he was basically toying with Romney. It was a way to humiliate him. Mm. I think that's possible. But my reporting does suggest that he was serious about it, not because he loved Mitt Romney, but because Trump thought that if he could get Mitt Romney and other former Republican critics inside the tent, he would look stronger heading into his first term. And so I think he he actually was seriously considering Romney, but it wasn't meant to be. Yes. I mean, that does seem true of Trump in the early phase of that of, of his first term, his only term uh, so far, is that he was trying to make an accommodation with, you know, the Washington establishment of the Republican yeah. Party. He was keen to bring them on board. And now he regards that as his great mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. the, the retribution of 2024 will be he'll make sure he doesn't make the mistake of trying to work with that Romney establishment again. So I, I have a piece coming out in The Atlantic uh, pretty soon. I'll give a little teaser here, but it's kind of about what a second term Trump administration would look like. What kind of people would he be appointing, putting in the White House? And I talked to a bunch of people in Trump's orbit, people who worked for his administration. And the thing that they all said was, he will not make the same mistake again, right? He believes that he was burned by putting all these kind of establishment Republicans in prominent roles and thinking that they would, you know, serve at the pleasure of the president, that they would do what he wanted. And instead, he felt like they were constantly colluding against him, that they didn't take his orders seriously, that they were undermining him. And then, you know, many of them left the administration and wrote tell-all books or, you know, uh, became kind of very vocal Trump critics. So the consequence of that is that he is going to prize loyalty and obedience over almost everything else when he's looking at his next administration. 
I think for some people, they might hear that and say that 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 sounds great, right? If you're a Trump supporter, you'll say, I I want Donald Trump's, you know, vision enacted, so they, they should be obedient. But I think others might say, certainly in establishment Washington, I think that the fear is that will mean a lot of hardcore MAGA diehards in the administration doing things that we've never seen before. And I think that a second Trump term in a lot of ways could be even more unprecedented than what we saw in the first term for that reason. Well, McKay Coppins, thank you very much for coming on to the Americano podcast and many congratulations on your book and its success. And uh, I hope we'll get you on again at some point. I'd love to. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Faroz, and the rest of the Spectator's broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America.